Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Kim Shieldkamp, a professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. We talked about data use in the K-12 space. This is an area I have a lot of experience in, both as a teacher and in education technology. We talk about data literacy, data teams, and the role of school and district leaders in creating a culture of data use. We also discuss the complexity of data use as an effective practice. This cannot be overstated. In a 2019 paper, Kim identified five building blocks for a new wave of data-informed decision-making. I asked if there was one that was more foundational than the others, and she stated that this is an integrated series of steps, meaning that they should all be done in tandem with one another, and failing to put enough attention and resources toward one step can significantly inhibit the entire practice. It is also not a linear process. You don't necessarily start with step one and then go to step two, etc. Personally, this is so critical to understand because data use is a fairly widespread practice, yet it's rarely done well. And to do it well takes time, effort, and resources. You might have wanted a recipe to do this work well, but I just don't think that recipe exists. One other quick thing before the conversation. I haven't done much plugging since I launched this project, so I do hope you listen and enjoy the show. If you enjoy it, please review it and share it. The show can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're in the process of setting up a YouTube page and a subreddit thread where you can begin to talk about some of the issues addressed both in the podcast and the newsletter. The newsletter can be found at spanningboundaries.com. This is an ongoing project. We're working to improve the site and deliver more content to you, but it's a process, so I hope you bear with us. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Kim Schildkamp. I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Kim Schildkamp. Kim is an associate professor in the Faculty of Behavioral Management and Social Sciences at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on professional development in data-informed decision-making. She is a Fulbright scholarship recipient, which she used to study data in Louisiana. Kim is also the current president of ICSEI, the International Congress on School Effectiveness and Improvement. Kim has done research on data use and school improvement in multiple countries and has published numerous papers in peer-reviewed journals. The topic of today's conversation, one that is near and dear to my heart, is data use in the K-12 space. Kim Schildkamp, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So a big question to start, but I think it's helpful to frame the conversation and to hear how you conceptualize data use and its role in the schooling system. Why use data at all? Uh, I think because what we've seen uh, also from our research that um, intuition and experience are very important, but it's not enough. Uh, if we want to make high quality decisions and to improve learning of all the children in our schools, then we need to combine our intuition, uh, that experience with data, uh, because the results clearly show that if you combine these different things, that will lead to improved education. And how do you think about the concept of data literacy? Uh, I think data liter literacy is a very important concept and that we need to distinguish it from assessment literacy. Um, assessment literacy is very important, but assessment literacy is about using assessment data. Uh, it's about test construction, uh, about analyzing assessment results and using those results. Uh, and it's many more than that, but just as an example. But data literacy uh, is so important because what we advocate for is a focus on more data than just assessment data. If we actually want to improve education um, in terms of student learning and achievement, but for all, also, for example, in terms of equity and well-being, we need to look at different types of data, not only assessment data. Assessment data are important. But for example, we need to look at classroom observation data. We need to look at survey data. We need to look at student voice data. And these are also important types of data that we need to look at and need to use in schools. And that's why the concept of data literacy is so important. And so thinking about that response, you would think about data literacy maybe as the umbrella um, and assessment literacy would be a subcomponent of that? 
That's one way to look at it, although I know that some of the researchers in the assessment field uh, do not necessarily uh, agree with that conceptualization. But I think uh, what is most important to stress here, uh, at least something that I would like to stress, is that we need to look at different types of data to capture the whole child and not just uh, achievement. What do you see as the difference between instrumental data use and conceptual data use? Um, I think both are important. Uh, what we see is that data use often starts with conceptual data use, where you look at data and you learn something new uh, based on these data. Uh, it leads to new insights uh, and it may sometimes surprise you. Uh, and that's conceptual use. And it's a very important aspect for learning from data. But uh, when we actually want to make use of those data to improve education, that's where we need the instrumental use part as well, because you need to go beyond um, just being surprised by the data or beyond learning something new from the data, but actually uh, take improvement actions based on the data. And that's actually a, a difficult step, because what you often see is um, that you learn something new from the data, uh, for example, the data may show that where you thought that uh, language problems were causing uh, low mathematic achievements, because you see in mathematics that you have a lot of those uh, story type of assignments where you have to figure out uh, what to calculate based on the story. And then you may think, well, but my students have problems with uh, language, so that's the cause of my problem. The data may tell you that they are doing fine on those types of assignments but they're doing less fine, for example, in calculating percentages. But the data can tell you that your students struggle with calculating percentages, but the data will not tell you what to do to solve that problem, right? Do you need to spend more time on percentages, but then you have less time to spend on geometry? Uh, do you need to repeat your teaching? Uh, do you need to use different curriculum materials? So that's something that the data cannot tell you. Um, so where you also need your experience uh, as a teacher as well. And I think that gets into a distinction that you make and a, a distinction that Professor Datnow and I discussed on uh, the podcast with her is the difference between data-informed decision-making and data-based decision-making. Can you just talk a bit about that distinction and why you think it's so important to, uh, to distinguish those two, um, those two uh, concepts? Yeah, and I think uh, if we go back more than 10 years ago, uh, we started with data-driven decision-making, and then uh, the field slowly evolved to data-based decision-making by recognizing that decisions uh, cannot be driven completely by data. So then we were using the term data-based decision-making, uh, trying to base your decisions uh, on those data. But I think we've also started to recognize that Data is just one of the aspects that influences your decision-making. And I think by using the term data-informed decision-making, we are trying to acknowledge that uh, human decision-making is complex. Um, so data is one of the sources uh, that hopefully influences those decisions. Uh, but your experience uh, as a teacher, for example, if you've been working in a school for 20 years, uh, that's also very important to take into account when you um, try to take a decision. So I really like the term data-informed decision-making, although one of my books is called data-based decision-making. If I could go back, I would change the title. <laughs> but just to recognize um, the experience of our educators and the knowledge that they have, uh, which is also very important, and trying to bridge uh, the different fields, acknowledging the importance of their knowledge and of uh, their experience and combining that with data. And I think that is what we are trying to do to improve the quality of decision-making. Great, thank you. So I wanna talk about data teams. You are the lead author or co-author on a few papers on this topic, and you identify five building blocks for successful data teams. Number one is initiating and identifying vision, norms, and goals. Number two, providing individualized support. Number three, providing intellectual stimulation. Number four, creating a climate for data use. And number five, networking. As a school leader looking at, these, at this list, do I look at these five building blocks as a linear process? So initiating and identifying mission, vision, norms, and goals is the first step? Uh, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> 
but as often is the case, uh, the whole process of data use in reality is uh, actually quite messy and you go back and forward between the different steps. Um, so we try to visualize it, uh, the building blocks for um, effective data use in a coherent set of uh, but integrated building blocks. Because uh, yes, you need to have uh, a vision, you need to have goals and norms for data use. But if you don't have a climate for data use, if there's no trust, uh, then it's really difficult to work on data use. Uh, you can have uh, the trust, you can have vision, norms, and goals. But if the data use just stays isolated within the data team, but it's not, um, um, if it's not, if it doesn't go outside the data team, it will not contribute to whole school improvement. So all of these factors are interrelated and you actually need to work on them uh, simultaneously. But I do think um, what is interesting uh, when we started with this study, uh, we really looked at it from a formal leadership lens. Like we thought these are the building blocks for formal leaders. These are the things that formal leaders need to do. But the results of our study show that all the building blocks matter, uh, but, not, but not for all the building blocks, it's necessarily the formal leader who has to make sure that there is um, uh, individualized support. For example, teacher leaders could also provide this individualized support and then that building block is still in place. So it's really important that all the building blocks are in place, but it doesn't necessarily always matter if it's a formal or informal leader. So you could think about the, the school leader trying to take more of a distributed approach to this process, but needing to first identify where the expertise might be within their organization so that they can delegate some of these responsibilities? Yeah, and the distributed leadership is actually in one of the building blocks and uh, in providing intellectual stimulation. Uh, we found that it's really important that there is distributed leadership and that uh, the people in the data team actually feel that, that they have enough autonomy to take certain decisions and that they don't have to go to the formal school leader uh, for any every type of decision that they would like to take. So yes, distributed leadership is really important uh, for data use. Is there a building block of these five that you think is more foundational than others? And I'll also ask an answer to these questions might not be the same, but if I was a school leader, is there one of these that I would start with if I'm looking at my five building blocks and see that none of them are in place? Um, I would still say try to work on them simultaneously uh, mm -hmm. and we've developed sort of a, a tool uh, for school leaders to do that but I think um, if I would name one of the building blocks as foundational it's uh, vision norms and goals uh, because it's also something um, that I really advocate for in my work data use doesn't start with data uh, if you want to use data successfully, you need to have a clear vision and you need to have goals uh, on what you would like to achieve. And these are goals at the, the school level, but also at the classroom level and at the individual student level. And if you don't have goals, then it's really difficult um, to use data. So if you have to start, you have to start somewhere, right? So I would say start with vision and goals, but make sure that it's a shared vision and shared goals. One of the things that really surprised us when we started investigating data teams uh, and working on this step, that in a lot of data teams, the school leaders and the teachers would comment, we never talk about the goals of education anymore. And it's mm -hmm. rather strange that you don't talk about your goals while working in a school. Yeah, I appreciate that response. And that was uh, where I was hoping to go next. And I wanna, I wanna stay there a little bit because you know purpose does appear to be that first step, identifying that purpose, identifying goals, identifying vision. And in my experience, that step is either ignored or it's a step that data users spend far too little time on. So it's taken for granted. Or in other cases, the purpose might be accountability, which often leads to a narrow focus on yeah. the, instead of a focus on the whole child. Um, so, uh, you know, we might have some time to discuss the dangers of using data primarily for accountability, but I do want to just tease out a little bit why you think it's so important to start with purpose or goal setting and what it actually looks like in practice to do that. Yeah. 
Uh, I think a couple of things. Uh, in one of our older projects, uh, we tried uh, starting with data. So not starting with a purpose, but uh, making a data inventory. So sitting down with teachers and school leaders, look at all the data that you have available uh, in your school. And what happened was that all of the teachers uh, lost interest. Uh, they didn't want to do the data inventory, um, talk about purpose. They didn't see the purpose of making a data inventory. The school leaders were, to some extent, maybe a little bit more excited about those data inventories than the teachers. But talking to teachers, they said, well, but we did not become a teacher uh, to make data inventory. We became teachers to help students learn. And we don't see why we need to make these data inventories. So... Uh, really it led to a negative attitude of teachers towards the use of data. And that was uh, something that we did not want in the project. And then we turned it around. So we started talking to teachers, uh, talk about their classrooms, talk about their students. What are you happy about? What is going well in your classrooms? What are you unhappy about? What would you like to improve in your classroom? And they could always mention uh, things that they uh, were worried about, they would like to improve. Uh, for example, I'm worried about all the students uh, failing uh, mathematics in a certain grade, or I am worried about the motivation of my students, or I'm worried about the well-being of some of my students, or uh, in the Netherlands, it's possible to repeat a grade. Uh, I don't like the fact that we have so many children that have to repeat a grade because you have to start again with these students. So there are all kinds of things that they're worried about. And the interesting thing is that if you combine that with data, then it then it gets interested, uh, interesting for teachers. Because then uh, I would ask questions like, okay, for example, uh, you have a lot of students failing mathematics, but how many students are actually failing? What is a lot? Can you tell me a little bit more? And often they realize that they couldn't tell me how many students were failing. They just had in their head that a lot of students were failing. So then we looked at the data together and this is something that they got interested then themselves. And we looked at the data together to see, okay, how many students are we actually talking about? How many students are failing? And this is when teachers get really interested in data. And this is where we can work together on also using data to find out what causes that problem. And what we also see, and that's my final point here, um, is that sometimes problems are a little bit different than teachers think uh, in their head. Uh, for example, what we sometimes see, take the problem of great repetition. Uh, teachers will say, well, we have so many uh, students repeating the third grade of education. This is uh, in the Netherlands when they're 15 years old. This is when they hit puberty and they get fed up with learning. And we have so many students repeating the grade. And then we look at how many students are actually repeating a grade. And it turns out that there are much more students repeating a grade in the fourth grade than in the mm. third grade. So the problem might be slightly different uh, than you sometimes think. And uh, the good thing is that this gets teachers really excited about data because there's something in the data that they can actually learn from. There's something in the data that can help them to improve student learning in their classroom. And this is where uh, the data teams really get fired up basically and start digging into the data, start finding out what the causes are of these student learning problems so that they can actually help students. Yeah, it becomes more of an empowering experience than checking off a box. Yeah, and I think also the realization that we always combine data use with their experience. So it's not like here's a bunch of data and the data will tell you what to do. But let's look at the data. What do you think are possible causes of uh, learning problems with students or possible causes of uh, problems with well-being? And we take their possible causes very seriously. And then together, we try to verify or reject those possible causes with the data. So we really combine data with their experience and with their knowledge. And we do it again uh, because eventually they will figure out what the causes are of the problems that they are experiencing in their classrooms. But then, uh, as we just talked about, data can never tell you exactly what to do. So you, again, combine the insights from the data with their experience and their knowledge to come up with improvement measures. So, yeah, I like the term empowerment. This is really what we try to do. We try to empower teachers with data. 
Yeah, and you alluded to something that I saw a lot in uh, my my previous role where I supported data-informed decision-making around technology use and around dropout prevention is if you start with the data, you, you see school leaders and teachers start justifying the data that they're seeing rather than starting with what you just said in what, what they're seeing, what they think the problem is. And you get into a situation where you use data to confirm or challenge assumptions rather than using data just to justify things that you're uh, that you feel like you're seeing in the classroom. Yeah, and it's also what we also see uh, if you don't start with uh, a goal or a hypothesis, uh, people sometimes lower their benchmarks. Mm. Uh, for example, if you talk about um, student achievements, uh, let's take language um, as an example this time. And students are graded on a scale from one to 10. Uh, and then you look at the data together. If you do that before having that conversation, like, okay, in our school with our students, what do you think the average should be uh, at least? Hmm. And, and if you have a conversation beforehand, uh, for example, they will say, well, with our students in this neighborhood, the average should be at least a seven on a one to 10 point scale. But if you don't have that conversation and you start with the data and you see that the average is a six, which is a sufficient, they will say, okay, a six is sufficient, so that's fine. Whereas if you had that conversation beforehand, they will say, wait a minute, we set a seven and the average is six, so we're not fine, we need to do something. So it's an entirely different conversation um, that you have based on the data if you start first without the data. <laughs> No, I, I've experienced that. And I feel like a, a constant uh, response or typical response is that 80%, you know, how many people do you think should hit this benchmark? Everybody says 80%. Uh, and I think just, just naming that before actually looking at the data is so powerful because if it doesn't hit that 80%, you see folks responding saying, okay, well, you know, why didn't we hit that? What do we need to do to try to get there? Whereas if you you know, do not, sometimes it literally is just a 30 second conversation, naming it before moving forward with some implementation. Uh, they hit that maybe 70% and say, okay, this is fine. You know, let's just move forward from here. Yeah. And I, I think it also, um, if you talk about what that means, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the, the conversations that we always have when we're trying to establish a goal, uh, for example, um, agreeing that this many students will fail just talk about what this means for these students. How many students are we talking about? What does this mean for their further career, for their further lives? And just talking about the, the students in that way and the students that the teachers actually know um, also makes a, a real difference because the numbers are very impersonal. But yeah. uh, if you start putting faces on these numbers, uh, that also makes a difference. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I developed... A, uh, a series of data use activities focused on uh, dropout prevention and equity. And as you just said, data use numbers can be, um, can be impersonal. And if you start assigning names to those numbers and you start actually asking yourself, you know, let's say 80% is your you know, target graduation rate, that means that 20% of your students are not going to graduate. And if you're, you know, a ninth grade teacher or uh, in a bigger high school, uh, maybe there's a, you know, a, a assistant principal for a ninth grade class and you have a thousand students in your class, are you willing to accept that 200 of those students aren't actually going to finish? And yeah. I think once you, once you start having those conversation, you can begin to uh, start hammering the point home that uh, maybe that 20% isn't, uh, isn't the right benchmark. And uh, there are a lot of students' lives that are going to be impacted if you, you know, if you uh, use that as, as your goal. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk a bit about how outcomes inform the process? So outcomes in the form of feedback that might be improved test scores or maybe test scores that show a drop in performance. How do those outcomes feed back into uh, you know, goal identification or purpose? Um, you mean outcomes when the whole data use process uh, has been, well, finished, it's never finished because you always go in these cycles. Um, I think you see two different things. Um, 
if you use data to achieve certain goals and uh, you need to keep on monitoring the data to see if you've been effective uh, in achieving those goals and also sustainable in achieving those goals because unfortunately sometimes we see in one year you achieve the goal and then the next year it goes uh, down again so um, you need to keep on monitoring but what we also found uh, with our data teams is that once data teams have had that first success experience where they collectively actually went through the whole data team process, identified a problem, the causes, implemented improvement measures and actually solved their problem, they get enthusiastic and they will say, well, we've worked on uh, this area uh, now, we need to work on other areas as well. And this is what we really um, like to see in schools where basically um, depending on the team structure that is uh, existing in schools, grade level teams, subject level teams, that um, they all also function as a data team uh, to some extent. I'm not saying that they should be a data team all of the time, but in some of our successful schools, for example, all subject level teams uh, got the assignment from the school leader to yearly work on something that they would like to improve with regards to their subjects um, and use some of their team meeting time um, to do that. So instead of just based on intuition uh, or mathematics achievement is going down, let's buy a, a new book um, or uh, invest more time in mathematics, really look at the data to see what causes it. Um, so I think those first success experience can really help uh, in making any school more data informed, which eventually uh, will impact the lives of our students. Yeah, it gets back to that idea of empowerment and teachers get into the profession because they wanna have a positive impact on students' lives. And this is one way to, to empower them if they can see through a concrete process that they made a you know, positive improvement in a specific area. I would guess that that would logically lead them to want to do the same in other areas as well. Yeah, and also, I mean, sometimes um, most of our data teams are successful, but some of our data teams obviously uh, struggle. Uh, and Amanda Detnow and myself wrote a paper on our struggling data teams. And I think even when you struggle, when uh, you look at a problem and it's difficult to find out what causes the problem, uh, because you have a lot of hypotheses and then the data again and again uh, show that you need to reject uh, those hypotheses. I always worry about um, these data teams, but for most of these data teams, the teachers actually told us, well, it's been so important because we had all these assumptions uh, and based on these assumptions, we were going to invest uh, more time or more money in something. And then the data showed us that these assumptions were wrong. So we actually learned that it's so important to look at data because we would have taken decisions that would not be of benefit to the students. So even um, in those types of situation where you're dealing with something really complex, uh, based on data learning that some of your assumptions are wrong is also uh, very important. We sometimes call our data teams mythbusters because there are a lot of assumptions out there in schools that are incorrect. <laughs> I like that uh, data teams as mythbusters. Well, it highlights the role of the school leader in just asking why. So a school uh, data team may be composed of an instructional coach and some teachers come to you and say, we wanna work on this. A logical question is why? Why do you think that that's actually a problem? And having you know some data along with that intuition, not just focusing on quantitative data, but also qualitative data, the things that you're seeing yeah. in the classroom on a day-to-day -day basis as a way to triangulate and ultimately you know, support whatever decision you make to move forward. Yeah, and I think um, as what we found over the years as well um, is that often uh, assessment data, quantitative data can help you in establishing uh, the problem and the extent of a problem. But what we found is um, often student voice data can help you uh, identify causes of the problem, especially when it's uh, achievement problems. Uh, and we found this for secondary education, but also primary education students will tell you that they did not spend enough time studying for a certain test 
uh, that they've been gaming uh, or that they've been uh, too busy with their boyfriends or girlfriends, but they will also tell you that they didn't understand the instruction of the teacher. And they will also tell you that they've asked the teacher to explain it again, but that the teacher explained it in exactly the same time, same manner as the previous time. And they didn't understand the previous time. So that that didn't help their learning. So I actually found that student voice data is a really rich source of data that a lot of our data teams have been able to use to identify causes uh, of the problem. Yeah, and I just want to call out that student voice data doesn't even necessarily need to be an interview with a student. I think about when I taught uh, sixth grade math, like an exit ticket could be an example of student voice where I see yeah. that all of my students, or not all of my students, but let's say 30% uh, or 40% of my students didn't understand a concept, that would suggest to me that maybe I need to approach uh, that concept in a different way the next day and hopefully not teach it in exactly the same way and think I'm teaching it in a different way. But uh, yeah, using that uh, formative assessments as a, as a tool to really expose student thinking and student voice. Yeah, it's a very powerful source uh, of data. And you can see it, especially now with all the online teaching. Uh, there are a lot of digital tools uh, that you can use in your online or offline teaching to really mm -hmm. gather uh, information on your student learning in a very fast, fast way. So there are all kinds of data that you can use in that process. So under purpose, you write that goals are not values free. And this makes me think about a 2008 paper by Gerd Vista uh, and something that you said earlier, the fact that teachers do not often have conversations about the purpose of education also reminds me of that paper and the importance of re-examining the, the question of purpose in education. So can you explain a little bit more what you mean by goals not being values free? Um, yeah, I think an example that I would like to mention here um, is that, well, goals are always the, the result of a negotiation and deliberation between different parties because parents will have different goals than students, students will have slightly different goals than teachers, and teachers, again, than their school leaders and school leaders and district leaders. So there are a lot of stakes uh, involved in education. Um, and what we saw, for example, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, we have an inspectorate and our inspectorate has certain goals for education. So a lot of our data teams, when they are talking about the problems that they have, they relate the problems to the goals set by the inspectorate. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, almost a one on one connection um, between those goals and what the inspectorate finds important. Uh, which I find interesting because we have a very decentralized system in the Netherlands with a lot of freedom in education. So I thought that there would be other goals um, that schools would like to work on besides those set by the inspectorate. And I'm not saying that those goals aren't important, but there are more goals than just those. When we were starting, when we were starting doing data teams in Sweden, um, it was very interesting because in the Netherlands, it's all achievement or almost all of the data teams work on achievement related problems. So very much in a cognitive domain. We went to Sweden and the data teams there wanted to work on the well-being of students and the safety of students. So in other domains. And I was really excited about that because I thought, well, this just shows that data can be used for so many different ways. And um, there are more goals for education than just uh, achievement. But when we started studying the data teams in Sweden, it turns out turned out that um, in Sweden, the schools are held accountable to the municipalities. And in that year, the municipalities set certain goals for their schools, mainly focused on issues such as well-being and safety. Mm -hmm. So again, there was this line um, between accountability pressure and uh, the data teams that really determined the goals that the data team were working on. And it's not necessarily a problem um, as long as um, those and those accountability positions set important goals. Uh, and I think nobody can argue with the fact that safety and well-being are important goals for education. And I don't think that anybody will argue with uh, achievement goals are also important for education. But... I would like to see that schools take a little bit more freedom and uh, look at their vision um, and look at what are the things 
that we find important. So not just the, the mathematics and language. I've been giving you a lot of mathematics and language <laughs> uh, examples, but not a whole lot of uh, music examples or creativity or well-being examples. So I think when we look at the purpose of education, there's more than just achievement. And it would be really great if schools would focus on all these different aspects of education and use data to achieve these different goals and not just focused on uh, those goals um, influenced by the accountability system. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate the way that you frame that goals being the result of negotiation and deliberation and the fact that there are a lot of stakeholders involved and that the stakes are high. We're talking about people's kids. We're talking about teachers who care a lot about their kids. Uh, and uh, it's important to recognize that everybody comes to that conversation, the various parties with their own hopes and dreams, with their own goals for what outcomes should, should be, what they should look like. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just having that conversation, uh, what we talked about earlier, uh, so don't start with data, but start with goals. Uh, I think the most inspiring um, talks that I had with data teams uh, when I was still coaching data teams was were in those first sessions that we talked about. What type of school is this? Uh, what is your vision? Uh, what are the goal, goals that are important to you? What are the things that are near and dear to your heart and just having those conversations as a, as a starting point, um, I think that makes the difference. I used to ask district leaders during a kickoff call, uh, the product implementation kickoff call, what kept them up at night. And that was always, I think, a good conversation starter. You know, whether we stayed there, because uh, sometimes you know, you need to keep probing a little bit. Uh, you need to keep asking why, why, why to get to the actual problem that is, uh, is you know, most relevant to the work that they're doing, but uh, it establishes connection. And it also, I think, again, just focuses on that purpose, like why, why everybody's there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And what the interesting thing is talking about negotiation and deliberation in a data team, there are different teachers and school leaders together talking about the goals and mm -hmm. their opinions uh, often differ. Yeah. So just having uh, that conversation on these different opinions uh, already uh, is a first step towards that whole process. Yes. And one of the things that I often get frustrated with is the the idea that there isn't enough time to have those conversations because what else are we doing if we you know aren't having those conversations and then working based on you know the results of those conversations because otherwise it just seems like we're rudderless you know we're just sort of going through the motions without uh, establishing our agency and our purpose and in, in all of this work yeah, and I mean, it's so important. We often get the question, um, it takes so long to go through mm -hmm. that whole yeah. data use process, whether it is in a data team or uh, in, in another way. Uh, but I always compare it to a lot of the schools that we've been working with uh, have been dealing with their problems or trying to deal with their problems um, yeah. by buying expensive new materials, by increasing the number of hours uh, that uh, a certain subject is being taught. And again and again, all these um, measures cost a lot of time, cost a lot of money, cost a lot of energy, and don't lead to the desired results. And yes, the whole data use process might be a little bit slower, um, especially in a data team, uh, but in the end, it will lead to the desired results. And there are also ways of uh, slow data use and fast data use. Uh, I like that you brought formative assessment to the table. Uh, the whole formative assessment cycle um, is an example of a much faster data use process uh, to help students learning. But if you're dealing with a very complex problem such as great repetition, which has many different causes, then a slower data use cycle uh, mm -hmm. might be the solution here. Yeah, and building upon your response, if you're working on the same problem for 20 plus years or more time, uh, even five years, it seems like maybe you could spend one year uh, thinking about that problem and then a couple more years trying to solve that problem. The other yeah. thing that I think about is the teacher setting up their classroom at the beginning of the year. Teacher doesn't, or in my experience, teachers do not immediately jump into sort of your formal academic 
instruction, but rather they, you know, set the foundation for what, uh, you know, a classroom looks like, uh, you know, walking through various just daily routines, things like that. And those things take a lot of time, sometimes two, three, you know, four weeks, but they also set the stage for ensuring that time later on used for your more formal academic uh, functions is is used well, uh, that students know where they're supposed to be throughout the classroom. And you might argue that, well, you know, shouldn't you be using that time for, uh, you know, for that academic instruction, but ultimately you set up your classroom, you use that time at the beginning to really set the stage for for later in the, in the school year. Yeah, well, just uh, uh, an anecdote, if I can share, is that uh, we were working with a data team uh, focused on uh, English final examination results. And they scored below the Dutch national average for year after year after year. Uh, the Dutch inspectorate had visited the school several times and basically they were in trouble. Um, they started working with a data team to sit down and find out what caused uh, this problem. And they eventually figured it out. They implemented all kinds of improvement measures. And uh, after a year, the final examination results were uh, above the national average. So they were very happy. But at the same time, um, in that year, we had a big fraud case in the Netherlands where a school cheated on the next national examinations. So the Dutch inspectorate actually came to visit that school and they almost accused the school of also cheating on the exams, but luckily, uh, they could show the inspectorate, yes, we've been having low results for many years, but mm. this year we used the data team, we went through the whole process, we figured out what was wrong, and we corrected it, and now we're doing well. So the inspectorate was happy about that. But it's a funny anecdote that I still like to share. Or maybe not so funny isn't the right <laughs> word. <laughs> Do you know the movie Stand and Deliver? No. So Stand and Deliver is a movie made in the 1980s starring Edward James Olmos, and he is a calculus teacher at a low SES school in Los Angeles who is able to get, I don't know, most of his class or all of his class to pass the calculus AP exam, and he's accused of cheating, and uh, his students end up taking the test a second time and getting the same scores, but... Uh, yeah, that story just reminded rem, reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah, great great movie. If uh, if you're looking for a good movie about education, that's an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I want to talk a bit about barriers and enablers to data use. Um, can you talk a bit about what you think contributes to good data use, and then what gets in the way of good data use? Um, I think we covered already um, some of these uh, enablers and barriers. I think starting with a goal. Uh, vision and goal is very important. Uh, I think leadership, um, um, intellectual stimulation, individualized support, um, uh, a climate for data use, trust uh, are also very important. Um, what I also think is very important, and we didn't talk about that uh, yet, I think, is working together in a professional learning community. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, data use is typically seen as something that you do um, in your office behind the computer, right, with Excel files or SPSS files or whatever program you want to use. But I think um, the type of data use that we are talking about should not happen in isolation, but should happen preferably in a professional learning community where you work together on uh, the same goal. And I think that because the whole sense-making process uh, is very important here. Uh, it's not just about doing the analysis, but it's also about the interpretation phase. What does it mean? It's about combining uh, the data with the experience and the knowledge uh, of the people in the school. Um, so that whole process um, is very important to do together. Uh, what you also often see is that we all have biases, um, so confirmation bias uh, is a big risk in the whole data use process. But if you do it collectively in a group uh, that is that is more easily caught, uh, then people will tell each other, but wait a minute, that's not what the data say here. Um, and it's also what you want, what we see, um, you talked a little bit about uh, the importance of having a coach. I think um, having a good coach who can address uh, what the psychology literature calls cognitive bias 
is very important because actually you want to create that bias either because people in the professional learning community disagree with each other or because the data tell you something that you totally didn't accept and that you have uh, expect and you, you have troubles with accepting. Uh, a good coach really addresses that bias, that cognitive bias, uh, the cognitive conflict. Sorry, I'm using the mm -hmm. wrong word here. Yep. You want to have a coach that addresses the cognitive conflict, that really puts it on the table, that you really talk about together, because this is when the learning happens based on the data. And if you have a less uh, effective coach, this is something that is um, put under the table and will just con continue. So you think A, I think B, okay, we'll just continue and skip over it. Um, I think that whole process uh, is really important. So it's really, when talking about enablers and barriers, it's a whole list uh, of factors. Uh, and then several of our publications, we listed those factors and we go into them in depth. But it's the combination of uh, a couple of these things I think matters most. The professional learning community, the goal, the trust, the leadership. And the funny thing here, thing is here, um, the infrastructure, like having the data and the systems in place, of course, is important. It matters. But what we also found in different schools that um, if you have a school um, with fancy data systems, but a lack of leadership, a lack of commitment, a lack of trust, the data use process is bound to fail. If you have a school uh, with not so fancy data systems uh, where it's actually very difficult to get the data um, that you need, but you have commitment, uh, you have trust and people really wanting to invest in this, really want to uh, improve their school, uh, then you're very much likely to overcome uh, the lack of data system barrier uh, than vice versa. Yeah, and I want to build upon that in a in a minute, uh, asking about the role of technology in data use. But before that, I do want to call out that the professional learning community, I think, is is so critical. Again, thinking back to my time as a, a sixth grade math teacher, where we used data heavily, is we would give benchmark exams, and with the the it was a five to eight school, and the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade math teachers. There were four of us would sit down with the instructional coach for a full day, we'd have eight hours to grade those exams, to identify some misconceptions and to discuss with each other uh, what we thought were best steps to act on that data. And, you know, it, it's so important to recognize that interpretation can differ. So the way that I look at a data point can be very different from the way that you look at that same data point. I think we all experienced that here in the US during this most recent election. Um, and uh, and so having others to, to check you um, and to challenge you, to help you, you know, question your assumptions and uh, ultimately, you know, try to just find the best path forward because the way that I approach this work is teachers are there to support students to try to make those experiences as best as possible. And it's not always an individual effort, it's a collective effort. Yep, couldn't agree more. So what do you see as the role of technology in data use? What are its benefits? What are its limitations? Uh, I think technology has the potential to really enable um, the use of data um, because one of the steps is for uh, data use to be successful, you need data. And we don't want people spending a lot of time in getting the data out the systems, uh, reorganizing the data. So I think that whole... Uh, process of data collections, uh, data collection, getting the data ready to use um, is something that technology can really help with. Um, one of the dangers is um, that sometimes you see these technology systems like with a stoplight uh, system, like uh, the green is everything go, yeah. orange is it's so-so, and red, uh, there's danger, uh, you need to do something. I think that's an uh, oversimplification of reality. Um, however, they can be used as a starting point for the further process. So they could help you in setting the goal in that first step of data use. Um, secondly, um, I'm following uh, the whole data science field uh, at the moment because I think 
that that could also potentially make the lives of teachers and school leaders easier in the future. When I look at our data teams now, sometimes they spend a lot of time uh, on getting the data out the system, um, cleaning the data, uh, doing the analysis. Uh, and I think in the future with um, machine learning and even artificial intelligence, like those steps could happen automatically. Uh, and it's up to uh, the educators to ask the right questions. And then the system uh, will do the analysis for you. So that could potentially um, save time in the future. Uh, but there is a lot of work to do in that uh, area because, again, that also requires trust. There have mm -hmm. been some experiments with, um, for example, developing these dashboards with machine learning and artificial intelligence. And based on data, it will, teach you, will tell teachers what to do, what their next instructional step should be. This was one of the projects that completely failed. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it was that the whole dashboard was considered to be a black box. So teachers didn't trust in it. They had no idea uh, what was happening uh, in there. And also teachers felt like uh, they weren't taken seriously. Uh, they weren't just, teachers are not just somebody who you tell what to do. Uh, they have studied, they have their experience, they know their students. So you have to take that into account. There was a second project going on in New York at the moment where there's still a dashboard, uh, but the educators actually get professional development in what is happening in that dashboard. So they get informed about the black box behind it, not the nitty bitty grit stuff, but um, just to get some idea what is happening. And also the system doesn't tell you to do A, but the system tells you that A, B or C could be a good option as your possible next step. Uh, so also taking into account teacher experiences. So I'm really following uh, those type of projects uh, because I do think that data science can enable the, uh, the process of data use. But in the end, it's the teachers and the school leaders who need to be able to make those decisions. Do you worry at all about the overcollection of data and sort of, a, I guess, too much surveillance going on through the collection of data? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, uh, one of the, the side effects of some of our data teams is that the schools that we've been working with are collecting less data now. <laughs> That's an interesting um, effect coming from a data person. But what we see in schools that some data are just being collected because we've been having we've been collecting these data for years. But the goals that you had 20 or 30 years ago might not be so relevant uh, in this day and age mm -hmm. anymore. Um, so it's, again, starting with your vision and goals and then collecting the data that you need to monitor uh, and follow uh, these goals. I think that is important. So certain uh, data might be less relevant uh, today. So please stop collecting these data. If you're not going to use them anyways, then stop collecting it. Um, too much data collection, I mean, yes and no. I don't like the, the big brother is watching you uh, uh, type of effects. On the other hand, what we also see, especially in the field uh, of big data, is that these data can also lead to some really powerful new insights, things that you haven't thought of, and that could make a real difference to the lives of our students. Uh, but we always need to be careful of the privacy uh, of the people involved. And I think we need to adhere to those rules uh, that we've agreed upon together. Yeah, that, I'm curious why those schools are collecting less data. And there's a, it seems like there's a, a balance between not wanting to spend too much time and effort on data collection, but also not knowing what problems you might be facing five or 10 years from now and having longitudinal data to be able to look back and say, you know, what what, what did this look like five years ago? What did, what did this look like 10 years ago? Versus seeing a problem crop up and saying, hmm, I wish that I'd been collecting this data. So I'd have an idea of whether we're, you know, doing better than we were, if we're doing worse, if we're about the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, you can never know uh, yeah. because we might have new goals in the future that we uh, are not thinking about today. 
but what we do see um, is that some researchers call it goal displacement. And I like that term yeah, yeah. Uh, that we only focus on something that is easier to measure. Um, and I think that is happening sometimes in our schools that we only focus on, for example, mathematics uh, and language mm -hmm. development uh, at the expense of other goals. And we also have some new goals that are becoming more and more important. I mean, look at what is happening now in terms of uh, online teaching. So uh, concepts such as digital literacy are becoming more and more important. Uh, and not all of the schools, and I think a lot of schools, are not measuring the digital literacy of their teachers and students um, at the moment. But it is something that is um, really important. So we might want to start thinking about how can we support schools in collecting data on these new goals that we didn't have 10 years ago. So it's always sort of a check and balances uh, idea. But I think what is important that if you collect data on goals that are not relevant anymore in these days, day and age, or if you discover that some of the instruments uh, that you're using have reliability and validity problems, then uh, yeah, stop collecting those data. Yeah, when it becomes problematic as a teacher who uh, sees that they're being asked to collect all these pieces of data that they feel like are not important, it makes you, I think, less invested in the process of collecting the data that you know is important. Um, it just feels, you know, a bit like overkill. And I know that something like surveys, like we constantly survey teachers, we constantly survey students that can feel like too much. And I know we want to collect, yeah. you know, more to uh, to feel like we have all of our all of our proverbial bases covered, but at the same time, it really dilutes the importance of uh, of a lot of that. And I I also appreciate you calling out goal displacement. Uh, that was something that I'd wanted to ask about, and I felt like we talked about it a little bit. And that also makes me think about that 2008 Gert of papers. We just end up measuring um, or end up valuing what we are actually able to measure um, rather than uh, starting with with those values and thinking about you know how if at all we can actually measure those things yeah and i think we talked a little bit about technology um but i think we can also use technology um to collect data more without always uh doing surveys or interviews or classroom observations um think about what is happening with all the online teaching and um the chat files um that you can save um mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of adaptive systems uh, that students are working with. The log files uh, behind those systems are also a form of data uh, that have a potential um, for school improvement. So I think technology uh, offers a lot of promises for the future, but also a, a lot of pitfalls. And it's trying to make use of those uh, opportunities and trying to get rid of those pitfalls. Uh, that will be a big challenge for the future. Yeah, well, I mean, something simple that I do for the newsletter that I produce is I'll do a draft and then I'll just copy and paste it below in Google Docs and then start a new draft or I'll edit it. So you can see each you know subsequent draft. And for a student, you can see your progression from where you started to where you finished was traditionally you know, not so easy to do in Microsoft Word. Um, you can do it, but a little bit clunky um, and certainly not as easy to do um, just with regular paper and pencil. So um, even little, you know, things like that, that's not super advanced tech, uh, but it is a way that tech can be used um, in, a, in a useful way. Yeah, definitely. So I, so I have two more questions and then I'll, uh, I'll let you go. Um, what do you see as the difference between European scholarship and American scholarship? Uh, in the K-12 space? And are there other parts of the world where you see interesting research going on in the K-12 space? Um, I think, well, one of the differences uh, that I see, well, it's first of all, it's diff difficult to talk about Europe and talk of about course, the yeah. U.S. because yeah. the U.S. with all the different systems uh, in place and the same goes for Europe. Uh, but what I do find very interesting is the differences in uh, accountability systems um, mm -hmm. that are in place. Um, whereas a lot of countries that I work with in Europe um, have much less strict accountability um, measures in place than, for example, in Louisiana, where I worked for a while. And it basically, when I was there, uh, if the school was not um, reaching certain benchmarks a couple of years in a row, then it simply would be closed down. Well, these things are um, 
uh, are impossible in uh, the Netherlands or Belgium or some of the surrounding countries. Um, so I think that whole um, accountability versus school improvement um, is very interesting uh, and a difference. Uh, but it's also about finding that balance because um, if there is too little accountability, uh, then it doesn't work either, uh, what we see in some countries as well. So I think finding that balance between accountability and school improvement, um, uh, accountability and support um, is a big difference. And other things, I've visited a lot of schools all over the world, but the interesting thing is that um, schools are schools. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the teachers are usually there because they care about their students and want to help them um, learn. Um, interesting is also that we've come from such a long way, but most traditional classrooms still look the same as 20 years ago, which is also <laughs> very interesting uh, if you look at all of the things that we've learned. So I I could not mention any big differences between, well, Europe, if I generalize Europe and the U.S., apart from the whole accountability perspective. What we, for example, found when we um, started working with data teams in Texas uh, was that the whole accountability um, pressure really influenced uh, the functioning of a data team and not necessarily in a positive way. And the whole accountability pressure also uh, led to a lack of time. Uh, because, for example, in Texas, it was impossible. In the Netherlands, we have our, an hour and a half data team meetings every three to four weeks. In Texas, that was impossible. 40 minutes was the max that we could get there. And 40 minutes is just not enough uh, if you meet once every six weeks, uh, where you basically have to start over um, again. Um, and you could not really get to those in-depth discussions that you want to have based on data. Uh, but this is Texas, so I don't know if that's the same for <laughs> all of the states in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, 40 minutes isn't isn't even enough time to begin to have those in-depth conversations. Almost if you're having them on like a daily basis, you need a prolonged amount of time to, yeah. to dig deeper. Yeah. The last question that I had was about your 2020 paper on the importance of professional development uh, uh, on what you call the innovative use of information and communication technologies or ICT during the pandemic. Um, so how do you think about the evolving role of technology in the K-12 space? And if you've seen schools that have been doing well during this time, navigating the challenges of the pandemic, you know, and maybe that's, you know, grading on a curve. What, what, what are they doing well? And what, what suggestions would you have for folks who are still, you know, navigating these waters, which feels like almost everyone? Yeah, I think so. Well, I think we're learning as we are going. Um, a couple of things that I've seen uh, which have worked well um, is again, we talked about professional learning communities uh, where people form uh, these more informal uh, learning communities because everybody's dealing with the same issue, how to provide online education. And we don't constantly have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from each other and learn from each other's um, successes. Um, I think what we've also seen, uh, especially now uh, the pandemic is uh, lasting a lot longer than a lot of us uh, in initially thought, uh, that we need to focus not only on achievement, but also on well-being uh, of our mm -hmm. teachers and of our students. And I think we're a little bit too much focused on achievement and the achievement gap, which is very worrisome, don't get me wrong, but we also need to focus on well-being and also safety. Um, and I think, um, of course, I'm going to tie it to the data use fields. <laughs> uh, I think that what we've also seen is that um, using, collecting and using data for monitoring purposes uh, is very important. Monitoring uh, achievement, monitoring well-being, monitoring simply how people are doing. Uh, and technology can actually help you um, with that. We talked a little bit about formative assessment tools, um, the exit tickets that you could do online, things that you can do in the chat. Uh, there are other uh, really cool tools that you can use uh, just to monitor uh, achievement and learning, but also just checking in with your students. How are you doing today uh, besides all of the learning problems that people are facing? So I think if we can um, collect data 
on those different aspects during online teaching that is very important. Yeah. Can you give an example of a tool that you see being used? Um, sure, but I, I'm always a little bit worried about naming specific tools. Yeah, maybe a, a way that a, not maybe not a specific tool, but how you've seen, I don't know, a teacher using something to, to keep tabs on, on their students. Yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, very easy to use uh, quiz tools. Uh, so you can do a short quiz. Uh, there are tools for those exit tickets that we um, talked about. Um, you could do uh, online whiteboards where all of the students have to um, uh, write down uh, the answer to an assignment. Um, is something that you can uh, use very easily. Well, those are all the questions that, that I had. Um, and I know we're at time. Um, so uh, Kim Chilkamp, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed that. 